Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast is brought to you by Stock Market Hats. Stock Market Hats claim to be stylish and funny. Frankly, I wasn't that amused by some of them, but maybe you will be. And it's not just hats either, but they have t-shirts, sports bras, socks, and even pet ID tags. It's worth checking out, and right now you can take advantage of a 10% discount on all merchandise. Go to stockmarkethats.com and enter the code CONTRARIAN before you check out and take advantage of this special offer. There is a referral link I will put in the show notes as well. Stock Market Hats, claiming to be stylish and funny. All right, welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast, Season 4, Episode 2, here with James Folk in Hong Kong, joining us from Hong Kong to discuss his book, Financial Cold War, A View of Sino-U.S. Relations from the Financial Markets. James, the uh, Sino-U.S. relations and Chinese economy is something that comes up quite a lot on this podcast. A lot of people, as I'm sure you know, have views on this, often very opinionated views one way or another. But you are in a unique position. And you can tell us about your background later on in the book, in, in the show. But I, I want to talk about this book first and your ideas for it. Because like, I, like the book suggests, there is, and it's already been used, this term, Cold War between the U.S. and China. But for all the reasons you point out in the book, this is not like a traditional Cold War like we saw between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. The two countries have many entrenched interests, a lot of trade going on. Your premise is basically that this, this Cold War, to the extent that it can be called that, is going to be fought along financial markets. And so very curious to have you on the show, to have, have you talk over this a little more. So with that, I'll just let you take it away and, and tell us about this book. Well, look, I mean, the, the financial cold war, as I define it in the book, is the invisible conflict embedded in the structure of the global financial system and national financial policies, which have been driving ever higher levels of wealth, income, inequality. And what this has led to is a rise in social tensions in China, in America, and in other countries, which has been driving conflict. And you know, in the financial sphere, this has spilled over into some of the more obvious things that people talk about when they think about financial cold wars, which I call actually a geoeconomic war, where people are putting sanctions or countries are putting sanctions on each other's, they're limiting access to markets, and they're using their, their financial heft uh, 
to try and manipulate or, or contain their strategic rivals. And what I'm worried about, and the reason particularly why I've written this book, is that this now risks spilling over into ever more aggravated conflicts. Mm. And the, you, you mentioned the, the trap of Thucydides, the Thucydian trap here, which is that a rising power, be it a rising economic or military or world power, and an entrenched, the existing world power almost always, in fact, always meet militarily at some point. And there's many examples of this throughout history, going back to the Peloponnesian War, right? That's, that is where it comes from, right? But yeah. um, so talk, talk to us about that and whether you think that a military conflict between the US and China is inevitable. No, I don't think it's inevitable, but it's depending, it is highly dependent on the, the individual, many individual decisions taken by leaders on both sides. And you know, the, the fact that we understand today that you know, there are these kind of cyclical dynamics in great power relations that can lead to things like the Thucydides trap means that you know, we should be able or we should be better equipped to avoid them and, and avoid repeating those historical mistakes. Mm. Should be and, and, and may well be, but yet there is obviously a lot of tension that has been rising, you know, over the last couple of years, uh, you know, through the Trump presidency, of course, and, and more recently over, over Taiwan and, and other things. Uh, where do you see the, U, the Sino-US, the US-China relationship right now um, in terms of, yeah? Look, it, clearly it's, it's not been in a great place. Mm. And you know, I, I think part of, part of the problem is that, you know, as social pressures have risen in both countries, there's been a tendency for politicians on both sides to deflect the problems onto others, and, and particularly to pursue relatively populist and nationalist rhetoric, which has simply compounded that those feelings of the, the, those feelings of enmity towards each other. I think that's far from helpful. Mm. No question. What are some ways out that we can? I mean, we already, like we've said, we've already had the, the economic, you know, interaction between the U.S. and China. Although maybe some could argue that this has come down a little bit recently, with the U.S. onshoring a lot of manufacturing, though by no means all, by no means even most. Um, and China is still a factory to the world, so it would seem that it is in the best interest of the China and uh, of the U.S. and Western powers to keep things the way they are, right? Well, I, I think really the, the fates of the two countries are, are highly intertwined. I mean, the globalization over you know, the past 100 years has meant that you know, we are ever more tied together through trade and international investment. And actually, by and large, that's been a good thing because it's helped you know, less prosperous countries become more prosperous, and it's certainly driven higher levels of growth than, and development than we otherwise would have had. But you know, clearly there, there have been imbalances in that. And one of the key problems that I point to in the book is the role of the US dollar in the global monetary system. Because you know, the, the dollar was put 
at the center of this, this system at the end of the Second World War. And you know, really the, the system was a bad design from the outset. And you know, that wasn't widely recognized until over a decade later. But you know, by that point, it, it became very difficult to unwind that, that role of the dollar. And so you, you've had, you know, as global trade and global investment have increased over time, you've just had you know, an exponential increase in those imbalances. You know, each side kind of hurls accusations at each other in, in terms of what the problems are. If you're sitting on the US side, you're accusing emerging markets of really you know, holding artificially holding down their currencies to steal US jobs. If you're sitting on the side of the emerging markets, you're, you're sitting there at the mercy of you know, the volatility of the dollar because quite often times your companies and your governments have had to raise money in US dollars. So when there's been a big fall in your currency against the dollar, then you've had you know, difficulties in repaying, that's, which have led to bankruptcies, which have led to unemployment and, and huge human misery in those countries. And, and ultimately, this comes down to the, the fact that it was never sustainable in the first place for the dollar to play both the role of the US's national currency and the role of this global utility that everyone needs to use when they're interacting internationally in trade and investment. Mm. Yeah, interesting points. But of course, this also serves the US's purpose to have the US, the dollar as the reserve currency in the world. And right now, are there any realistic options to replace it in the foreseeable future? Well, I think when you say that it serves the US's purposes, you have to really look at this carefully because I don't think that that actually holds true at okay. all levels of U.S. society. So, of course, if you're you know, if you're a wealthy shareholder of you know, a large U.S. corporate, that because the U.S. dollar has been structurally overvalued, you've been able to offshore your manufacturing to lower your costs and increase your profit margins. It's been great. I wouldn't say it's been so great if you've been a U.S. manufacturing worker over the last forty years. No so ultimately, this is you know, this comes down to a question of you know, whether it is working for the majority of society. And one of the key points that I make in my book is actually that this belief that the dollar's global role is good for the U.S. is a fallacy. Actually, mm. for most people in the U.S. today, it's actually hurting them. Mm. Interesting. But yet the U.S. would not be able to run its current, its current account deficit and continue to uh, you know, in, inflate away at its, its, its you know, issued treasury if the, if the dollar wasn't issued treasury bonds, if the dollar wasn't the reserve currency of the world, right? And but, how but much? You, is, yeah. but, but sorry, sorry to sorry to interrupt you. Not at all. But but actually, if the U.S. wasn't playing this role, if it wasn't artificially overvalued to the extent that it is, that the U.S. might not need to run those sorts of deficits. Right, but but what but what choice does the U.S. have as far as like? 
you know, whatever social spending, whatever, you know, government uh, things there are, it's got to be paid from somewhere. Right. Look, um, I mean, that, 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 that comes, to, that, that comes to a different question. And, and you know, the, the fact is that the U S government has spent well beyond its means for a very long time. now. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why it was able to start doing that in the first place was because there was this almost bottomless pool of international demand for dollars. But actually, that that's not the case today. What, what's actually happening? What actually over the last six seven years, that the total balance of international holdings of U.S. Treasuries hasn't really increased. Where, where, who's been buying that debt? It's been the Fed, and so at some point, you know, although markets can stay irrational for longer than you or I can stay solvent. At some point, reality is going to catch up with the dollar. And if we don't take active steps at an early enough stage to deal with those problems, then the collapse at some later point could be quite catastrophic. Mm. Okay. So what is China doing now to to kind of take these steps to get away from U.S. dollar. Obviously, the the, the yuan has you know entered the, the IMF's uh, currency basket, right? And and they are doing some stuff around digital currencies. What can you tell us about that? Well, I, I think first of all, I'll say that you know actually, I think China is a very very long way from usurping the dollar, and in fact, I don't think that China having looked at the costs of the dollar's global role to U.S. citizens, it actually has an aspiration to turn the renminbi into a replacement for the dollar. But certainly it has been making steps to internationalize the renminbi. And actually a lot of these steps kind of started out because of very practical reasons. Then now more, China was very close. There weren't a lot of people traveling overseas before. Now there are hundreds of thousands of Chinese students all over the world. Chinese businesses are becoming more international. And so necessarily, China has had to make steps or take steps to allow its currency to become more convertible just to facilitate these sorts of international interactions. Um, but but the renminbi is still relatively, you know, it's still relatively tightly controlled, and the capital account is still largely closed. Uh, China's been making some steps. You talked about the digital renminbi or, or the China central bank digital currency. It, it's been taking steps to modernize its financial system, but those are still relatively domestically focused. The, the, the digital currency is really just something which is initially intended to be used by dom- for re- domestic retail payments. Mm. So I think you know for, from the perspective for, from the perspective of becoming an international currency and becoming a global reserve currency, China if they want the renminbi to play that role, would have to take far larger steps to internationalize the currency. And particularly what they would have to do is start allowing many, many more renminbi 
denominated securities to be issued offshore. Because if you if you receive renminbi today, you know through a, a commercial trade transaction, you're still sitting there. If you're in Malaysia or Indonesia, you're still sitting there scratching your head and saying, "Well, actually, what, what am I going to do with?" These, you know, if I get US dollars, I can put them into treasuries, or I can buy any number of financial assets. Actually, if I get these Roman B, there's really not that much I can do with it outside of mainland China. Mm. Yeah. So, and, and that's kind of the crux of the matter here. So, uh, you know, how do you get that kind of credibility if you are China? Or how do you switch away from dollars so that the the USD is is not this this weapon. Um, yeah, like what options do you li- realistically have? Well, I think uh, you know, to 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 insulate itself from U.S. financial sanctions it is practically very difficult. China has taken some small steps, particularly through creating its own payment systems that bypass things like the SWIFT network. It's created the digital currency where actually that entire payments via the, the digital currency could bypass many of the infrastructures through which dollar payments are made and settled to today. But you know, it's it's far from it's far from perfect in insulating China from. U.S. financial pressure just simply because China is still so dependent on the dollar in its international trade, not just with the U.S., which is now only about 14% of of its global trade, but its trade with all other countries. Mm. Yeah. It sounds like that is kind of the main thing that needs to happen here is that the world just needs to, not just China, but the entire world needs to become less U.S. dollar dominated. Right, if this if this kind of financial cold war is going to resolve itself, is that a fair statement? That that that's a fair statement, and you, you asked how they would get there, and yeah. uh, I think that solving this is a gargantuanly complex problem. Yeah. But but there are precedents. So when, when Sterling, the pound Sterling, handed over that status to the U.S. after World War Two. Britain followed, I think, quite a quite a stringent policy of uh, removing the, the pound from that global reserve role. In 1947, pound sterling accounted for 87 hmm. percent of all global foreign exchange reserves. Uh, over a period of 30 years, that the country pursued capital controls. It pursued several rounds of devaluation uh, and had a couple of uh, instances of IMF support Mm. and was supported by many other countries and gradually wound down the the role of pound sterling, which set the UK up, in fact, by the 1980s, then to actually significantly outperform many other European countries. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. But it's still pretty unpalatable politically, right? I mean, if you're a politician in the US, why would you go down, try to go down that route? Well, the, the, reasons, the, the reasons why the, the UK did it were, were really because 
after the Second World War, there, there, there were certainly large constituencies opposed to doing that in the UK, not least the, the financial services sector, which was very powerful in, in the city of London. Mm. But after the, after the Second World War, Winston Churchill got voted out of power and you, you had a Labour government to come into power. And when they looked at it all said and done, you know, Britain, for Britain to continue playing that role meant continuing to absorb all the financial imbalances from the rest of the world. And what that translated into was the loss of British competitiveness and the loss of British jobs. Mm-hmm. And so you know, it, it certainly wasn't, a, wasn't an easy decision or a decision that was taken lightly. But you know, it was a decision that actually benefited ultimately the, the majority of the electorate in the UK. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. But it does sound like there would probably need to be some kind of econo- major economic recession or major crisis even in the US for that to become a possibility politically, one would think. No? Um, well, we've had, we've had no shortage of financial crises. In yeah, none of them have, the have mattered, I know. Yes. Right. But it's still the status um, quo is still exactly the same, right? I think, I think that it certainly will need, it will need significant political impetus for that to mm. happen. But you know, it's, not also, it's not also, of course, entirely within the U.S.'s control in that mm. other countries may gradually start to move away from the dollar themselves, which actually you're, you're, seeing, you're seeing happening to an extent in that other countries' central banks are, are no longer buying U.S. treasuries at the rate that they were mm. 10, 15 years ago. And so uh, I think you know, as, that, as that transition happens, people will look for more attractive places to park their capital. And you know, that, that may well become other countries' financial assets. Hmm. Hmm. So okay. I, I think, I, I think you know, the, this, this, is a, this is a process which can take place via a number of different routes. What, what I would advocate is that you know, it's done in a collaborative manner that actually then manages the process and avoids many of the messy disruptions that you might see otherwise. Mm-hmm. What are these? Just out of curiosity, what are these countries buying if it's not not U.S. Treasuries? Well, they've started by they've started by more other countries' sovereign bonds, but okay, a, a significant uh, there's been a significant increase in the purchase of other risk assets, so okay. e- equities foreign direct investments and so forth. Mm-hmm. But what, one, of the things, one of the things which China has done instead of putting more money into US treasuries is actually starting to invest in infrastructure development mm-hmm. in other countries through mm. what, what it calls the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. That is interesting. Because I was going to say, there's not too many, I mean, if okay, equities is one thing, but there's risk with that. And, you know, the US treasury, Right now, the ten-year yields one point seven or some percent, maybe even more as of today. 
haven't looked, but, and the German bunds have a negative yield and most other European uh, bonds do too, which is the next safest thing. So why wouldn't you put it in the treasuries if you're getting 1.8 versus zero? Right. Like, well, I don't you, know. you could, you, you put, you, you put the money into Chinese government bonds. Uh, the 10 year rate is around three and a half percent net. Sure. So, so this in, in the sovereign debt, in the sovereign debt game, given how leveraged many sovereigns are around the world, actually, this is a this is more of a game of you know, the least bad option, mm. rather rather than necessarily your people actively wanting to put their money into treasuries or EGBs. Sure, sure. So, sure. Some invest some investors, of course, have no choice because they're they're forced to hold a certain number of them. Which brings up another question, but another problem potentially. But yeah, that's 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 good. That's a good point. All right, how else is this you know financial cold war? Do you see it playing out, and what does it mean for asset prices in the U.S. and China? Well, I think the other ways in which the financial cold war have played out have been through you know, international tax competition, hmm. which has driven actually in many countries, far more regressive and unfair tax systems, simply because countries have been in a race to attract capital and investment. Capital tends to be much more mobile than labor. And so this has driven driven slightly balmy tax systems in which actually the, the very wealthy are paying far lower rates of taxation than average middle-class workers. And so, you know, that, and I can go down, uh, the book goes down into many more individual country uh, policies that have contributed to this financial cold war, things like antitrust enforcement or mm. the lack thereof, mm. uh, industrial policy, executive compensation structures and other financial incentives so i think you know in in terms of how this in terms of how this plays out uh, i think you know if you if you look at the the historical cycles you've gone through periods of huge wealth accumulation which is what we've been through uh, over the past 30 40 years and Following those periods of wealth accumulation, one of two things happens. The the first option, which I think is by far the preferable, is that that there's been some political consensus which has driven a level of wealth redistribution through higher taxes on the rich, greater investment in social welfare, and other programs, or you, you've had the, the violent redistribution where it's essentially precipitated civil wars, international wars, and other conflicts in which ma- many people have their lives turned completely upside down. It's not, frankly, great for anyone who lives through any of those periods of time but ultimately ends up in the redistribution of wealth, income, and other resources in a more fair and egalitarian way. 
Okay. Um, all right. Which scenario do you see is more likely? I would strongly hope hmm. that we, given what we know and understand about these cycles today, that, that we choose the former. Hmm. Yeah, no question. I think we all do. I want to take a quick break here, uh, give our sponsors a, a, quest, a chance to make themselves heard. Um, and if you are a premium subscriber, do not touch the dial. You will not get the break. To become a premium subscriber, visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. This episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast brought to you by Stock Market Hats. Stock Market Hats claim to be stylish and funny. Some of them say things like, end the Fed, don't tax the rich, I heart the Fed, Dr. Parikh Patel, not back office. Okay, that one is actually kind of funny. Market cap cap. That's also pretty funny. And some other ones. You may know their Twitter at Stock Market Hats, but check it out stockmarkethats.com and enter contrarian at checkout to take advantage of a 10% discount. Curious to hear about your background. I read about it a little bit in the book. I know you hail from, from Hong Kong. You're, you're born there. And um, so, yeah, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about, about that, about your professional background how you got to be where you are now and how you came to write this book. I was born and grew up in Hong Kong and uh, attended boarding school in Scotland. Uh, after that, went and spent time in university in Beijing and ended up getting a, a job working in an investment bank in London. Uh, had a very interesting career in investment banking across Europe and in Asia and in, in 2012, in, as I was changing jobs, uh, I, got a, I got a call from someone working at the exchange saying, hey, what are you doing? Uh, can you come and help us out on something? And it turned out to be the acquisition of the London Metal Exchange, mm. uh, which is the, the largest commodities exchange uh, for trading base metals in the world. And so, you know, thereafter, I ended up on a pretty wild ride over 10 years working at the exchange and getting involved in the internationalization of China's capital markets, which gave me certain insights working at this intersection between financial markets and policy mm. on you know, how the, the global financial system works. And the reason for writing this book was that I felt that there were many things that even top policymakers and people who are who've been in financial markets for years 
didn't understand well and needed to understand better. Mm. Cool. Very interesting. So how do you see things now in, in China? The economy has been slowing a bit. There's been real estate issues um, you know, with the real estate market, as I'm sure you're aware. But, yeah, but they, it seems to have been, been able to combat it as they have other previous crises that, that, that they've had um, over the last decade or so. So where do you think, see things going from here in, in China economically? The Chinese government has done a, a remarkable job engineering uh, China's growth from being dirt poor mm. at the, the outset of the 1980s to being today, a, 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 on average, a, a moderately prosperous country. And if you go to any of China's major cities, you know, actually a, a very modern and technologically advanced society. Um, but, but China's development model has depended very much on the harnessing of Chinese people's savings to pursue investment in infrastructure and other development, which have enabled the, the growth of its export economy and, and the growth of its technology businesses. And while that's a very effective means of operating at the outset of economic development, as you go on for longer, you know, this very tight control of the pricing and allocation of capital tends to lead to significant capital misallocations, which have serious economic repercussions. And, and for China, the biggest challenge today, I would say, is, is the fact that it has the, the, one of the most rapidly aging populations in the world. The, the, the demographic cliff that the country faces is very considerable. And you know, over time, you know, if you keep investing in more housing, more industrial capacity in the face of a falling population, at some point you are going to have a financial blow up because the, the growth in population to support that growth in consumption just isn't there. Mm. We talk a lot about the China and, and the, the other parts of everybody in the world relying on the US for growth. And it is, like I mentioned at the outset, China, the factory of the world. Obviously, most of their customers are, I actually, I know about most, but many customers are in the US, and that's certainly true for other export nations. But what about if, um, how much do, do you know if the US corporations sell into China and how much is that dependent on their growth? And if there is a slowdown in China, there already is. And if it gets worse, how might that affect the fortune of these companies in, in the US and in the West, many of whom are very dependent on, on China to, to, yeah, to, to, to get growth? Well, I, I think you know, there's there's quite a there's quite a good precedent for that. If you look at what what happened to Japan between the mm -hmm. late eighties and and today, in fact, if you look at if you look at the numbers, the the decline in China's working age population as a percentage of the total population is likely to be much steeper than in Japan. Wow. because you, you had this extended period of, of one-child policy. And so I think certainly China is still 
at the moment are on a path of becoming more and more wealthy. And so I, I believe that that U.S. companies and international companies that are selling into China's consumer market will continue to see growth. You, you've also got technology-driven factors in that you know, you, you've got a large move of the vehicle fleet from petrol and diesel engines into electric vehicles. And so I think many, many companies will continue to do very well, but you know, companies that are solely dependent on a, a growth in population may find themselves disappointed. Mm. Oh, interesting. All right. Um, what, do, what, what do you, I'd like to ask, um, what are people, what is your biggest concern with this whole situation or just even anywhere else economically? Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. The, the economic problems are fairly clear for everyone to see. I think the, the things that worry me more are the implications of those economic problems if we don't deal with them, mm -hmm. but particularly in terms of the social upheaval and conflicts that they might precipitate. Because you know, while you know, we, we can sit in our offices and you know, crunch you know, models about you know, how economies and markets and your revenues are going to grow, the, the reality is that you know, if you end up with you know, huge social unrest or wars, which nobody wants, but history has shown countries are perfectly capable of sleepwalking into, mm. you know, all bets are off economically. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're a weapons manufacturer, I guess. Uh, probably their stocks would do all right. And that comes from this, and now we come full circle. Like how how likely do you say that? If you're if you're war gaming this, if you're gaming this out, you know the you know China pretty well, you know the US pretty well, you certainly know Britain also. So how do you how do you see this going out? Do you think that this is the type of thing where the interests are entrenched enough and, and the lessons from history are are strong enough where there won't be any military uh, interaction? Or could it be more along the lines of what we did see in the Cold War where we had you know, client, client versus proxy state type of things, you know, Russians in Afghanistan, the US and Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera. So, so first of all, very clearly, neither country, neither sets of leader wants to see a war between mm. China and the US. And, and I, I think, you know, if, if you take a step back, that, that scenario is highly unlikely unless the politicians are, are put into or are backed into positions where they, they can't get out of them. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, the, risk, the, the risk is really in fermenting this nationalist, populist type of rhetoric is that leaders back themselves into corners where they find it difficult to de-escalate when there are accidents. You know, maybe mm. you have a may, maybe you have a plane crash. Maybe you have you know, a, an accident here, or, or you know, a, a, a misstep there, and and that is 
probably the most likely scenario in terms of precipitating you know, some escalation conflict. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, and if you, but if you go back to like, let's take 1914, which is everybody's favorite example type of thing, right? I mean, you had here these empires in Europe, all of whom also had entrenched interests and, and there was a lot of free good movement of, of goods and services and people and capital, maybe not so much services, but you know, between these com- countries and, and it was not in their bench, best interest to fight a four year war and ended up literally killing most of them. And, but um, it still happened. Now, obviously, the situation there with alliances, et cetera, is maybe not entirely comparable or at all comparable, but it does show that, and you, you mentioned this before, that the countries don't always act in, in their self-interest sometimes uh, when it comes to these things. No, no, they don't. But I would hope that you're particularly having taken the lesson of, of the events that led to the First World War, we, we're now better equipped to avoid them. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Um, do you see any, any Chinese, China activity as far as the either through the Belt and Road or elsewhere that maybe hasn't been covered all that much in the West that is uh, of interest? Um, because when we talk about Cold Wars, we also have these. And again, I know you said financial versus, you know, typical, but, we, you know, you also you do have these client states and a lot of them, especially in, in Southeast Asia and, and in the the South Pacific are, are, have kind of been a bit of a, a, a kind of diplomatic battleground between the U.S. and China, and most of them kind of are, are play both sides against each other. Um, but some have kind of fallen into China's camp, and others have fallen into the U.S. camp. Um, is there anything there uh, update that that you're following that that is at all interesting to listeners? I would say that you know, sometimes that the Belt and Road Initiative is is looked at with a high degree of skepticism in the hmm. West, but I think it, it's certainly done in, in some places an awful lot of good. And China has, has uh, built an entirely new uh, subway metro system in Hanoi. Hmm. Um, it, it's, linking up, it's linking up rail transport routes you know, to places like Laos and, and other parts of Southeast Asia that should bring greater mobility and, and economic prosperity to these places. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think, you know, when, when some of the accusations you know, about, you know, you know, China deliberately creating debt traps, I think that that's often far from the truth, but, you know, certainly you are right that you know, countries in Southeast Asia and around the region don't really want to get caught between China, caught between China and the US. And you know, as best they can, they're, they're trying to manage their diplomatic relations with both. And you, know, you, you could say that in, in some instances have taken advantage of mm. you know, the, the desire of both countries to bring them more into their respective orbits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair point. All right, cool. Uh, James Folkett, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast. Maybe in, in conclusion, you can tell listeners, uh, finally, I'll, and I'll put this in the show notes as well, where they can find out more about you, where they can find out more about the book. Thank you very much, Nathaniel. You, you can find out more about me on, on my website, James A. Falk, J-A-M-E-S-A-F-O-K.com. 
and that the book is available from major booksellers and on Amazon. Yeah, and your, your website has a link to all that. And like I said, I'll put that in. You're not on the social media, are you? On Other than LinkedIn, which we'll leave alone for now, but you don't, you're not on Twitter or anything like that? I, I'm, not, I'm not a big social media user, no. All right, well, that's probably very wise of you. Cool. Well, thank you all for listening. Thank you, James, for coming on the show. And that, thank you for being with us this, this week. And we look forward to speaking to you again next time. Thank you very much, Nathaniel. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time.